as I was reflecting on our time here this morning, um, I had been thinking about uh, how how my life has changed um, through the various stations of life that we pass through. And uh, in the last few years, it's been interesting uh, for me as you get older, uh, you become more limited in the number and kinds of things that you can do, uh, while at the same time, you have a little more time. I can remember for, uh, for, for years, I just always felt like I was just always behind and trying to catch up and hurrying and running. And uh, especially when you're raising a family or when you're in school or any of those things. Uh, and, and some of you perhaps can relate to that and feel like, yeah, it's just sometimes it's hard to stop and take a breath. Well, I'm actually at a point now where I'm able to do that. And uh, it leaves more time and more opportunity for reflection. And uh, until really rather recently, I just hard to find time for reflection and sitting and actually thinking. And as I've done that, I've come to the conclusion, something that I always knew, but it's just struck me as more and more the case that there is absolutely nothing that is more important than God. Pretty obvious. Yeah. Nothing more important than knowing God. The statement I uh, quoted Augustine, I think, when I was here last time, he was the one that said, Thou hast created us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Very profound statement. First question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So it's about knowing God. And that's why we come here, really. I mean, why did you come here this morning? I noticed there are other people doing different things. There are some people playing tennis out there. There are other people that are sleeping in. And there are other people that are doing various things that uh, you or I could be doing. But here you are. And why are you here it's because you are God's people or you're checking out what it means to be God's people. And that's because you want to know him. But then the question comes, well, how can how can we know God? We can't see him. And that's because he's invisible. He's a spirit. Uh, question number four, Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is God? And the answer, God is a spirit Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit. That means he's invisible. We can't see him. And so children ask, why can't I see God? I love that beautiful song by Judy Rogers by that name. Why can't I see God? Is he here with me? Is he somewhere out in space or is he near to me? I am just a child. Teach me from his word. Then I'll go and tell to all the great things I have heard. Teach me while my heart is tender. Tell me all that I should know. And even through the years I will remember no matter where I go. Right now, 
over in the children's ministry. They're taking that to heart. And they're teaching children while their hearts are tender. Is your heart tender? I hope it is. I want my heart to be tender. Because I want to grow in knowing God. But how, again, can we know the one who is invisible? How do we even know there's a God? Well, there are, are really three, three ways that we come to know God. First of all, we know Him actually even when we come into the world because God has planted within each of us a deep inner awareness of His existence. That comes with being made in the image of God. Now, I recognize there are people that deny this. Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 say the same thing. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, I would never call a person a fool for saying there is no God, because that's, that would be rude, that would be impolite. But God, that's what God says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So by implication, the wise person says in his heart, in her heart, well, there is a God. And as a matter of fact, that's what we know. We actually have within us this moral awareness of right and wrong, agreeing with the conscience that God gave us that God really exists. So the first way we know that God exists is that, well, he's put within us automatically a deep inner awareness of his existence. We'll go on to see today that, well, we actually, by nature, in our sin, we suppress that truth in unrighteousness and don't allow it to operate. We're going to need more help than just that deep inner awareness. But along with that, we know God exists because of something called um, nature or theologians call it general revelation. In other words, the heavens, and we're going to read about this in a moment, declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows forth his handiwork. So there's a revelation of God in the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, the universe that he's created. That's the second way we know God exists. And the third way is through what's called special revelation. And uh, we're going to read a little bit of special revelation in just a moment. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 19. The chief form of special revelation is the written word of God. It testifies to God's existence. So you got that as kind of a framework. We, we come in with a deep inner awareness that God does exist. And then we look at the skies. And as Immanuel Kant, as a matter of fact, said, the starry host above and the moral law within. And then the written word of God. These things are testimonies that tell us that God exists. We're going to need more than this, but that's really important. And that's helpful for us to know so that we're not sitting here today as fools talking about an invisible God that we can't see? Why are we here? Well, we believe He exists. And also that knowing Him is the most important thing there is. 
Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, the heavens, the sky, he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his book Reflections on the Psalms, wrote, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest in all the world. The psalm begins with the vast majesty of the universe and ends up in the humble Reflection of a solitary human heart. And in the process, it reveals to us knowledge or information about ourselves that is absolutely vital, as well as information, revelation about God. Now, the information that we have here, theologians, as I've said, have called this revelation. It's a word used to indicate what God wants us all to know about him, about ourselves, and about his creation. And the reason that he gives us revelation, the reason that he reveals himself, as J.I. Packer so beautifully puts it, God reveals himself to us in order to make us his friends. Isn't that wonderful? God reveals himself to us in order to make us his friends. In other words, he speaks to us for our good. And in this psalm, there are three voices that speak. You may have noticed it. There are three sections, three paragraphs to this psalm. The three voices are the voice of God in creation, the voice of God in his law, 
his Torah, and then the voice of God's servant in response to him. So I guess you could call this a conversation about revelation. And I'd like to listen to these voices a little more closely by keying in at these various voices to see just what they have to say to us. And the first voice is the voice of God speaking to us through his creation. I'll repeat the words. They're beautiful. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above or the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech and night to night reveal knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What is God saying? What is this voice saying to us in these first verses through creation? He's saying that God is glorious and that God is good. That's the point, I think, of the entire psalm. In creation, God shows himself to be good all the days of creation. And Psalm 19 clearly has Genesis 1 in view. Those days of creation when God created the heavens and the earth. All that God did was good. And he said at the end of each day, it was good. God has not left himself without a witness. He is good. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this. This is what it's all about. The very first prayer I think I prayed when I was in elementary school. We could pray in school those days. And we would say at lunchtime, God is great. God is good. And we thank him for our food. Amen. Years later, I learned the rest of it. By his hand, we all are fed. Thank you, Lord, for this, our bread. Very good prayer. Very actually profound. God is great and God is good. God is glorious and God is good. God has not left himself without a witness through creation. He speaks to everyone of his goodness. There was an incident in the life of Paul and Barnabas when they went to a town in small town in central Turkey today, Turkey called Lystra. It was just a small town and there were idolaters that lived there and Paul was walking by a guy and he was lame and Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed and he told him, rise up and walk. The guy jumped up and walked. It was a miracle, caused a great stir. It was so amazing that the townspeople decided to get some oxen to sacrifice to Barnabas and Paul thinking that the gods have come down to us in human form. And Paul and Barnabas were appalled by this and they did all they could to stop it from happening and they said no no we are men just like you and then immediately he turned the conversation to the true God and the living God and he said this we bring you good news that you should turn from idols to the living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them see how he's appealing to God's creation in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and harvests, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What's he doing? He says, in creation, God has not left himself without a witness, even for you idolaters. 
And so he tries to turn them from that, and he does such a good job of convincing him, in the very next verse, they pick up stones and they stone him. I think Paul should have allowed the myth of him being a god to last a little longer. Could have avoided getting hit by some rocks there. But, but the point is, God is good. And creation shouts that out to us. God is good and God is glorious. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. Now, glory is one of those words that we religious people use all the time, and most of the time I think we have the faintest idea what we're talking about. Oh, I want to see your glory, Lord. Show me your glory. We glorify you. What, what do we mean? What, what are we saying when we say? What, what does glory mean? It is a broad concept. It is broad. The first thing we could say about glory is that because God is essentially invisible, it's hard to know Him. However, there are ways that He does present Himself to us or make Himself manifest. Manifest means apparent to the senses. And God's glory is one of the ways that He makes Himself manifest. Now, glory has to do with the brightness of God and the greatness of God. And so you see things in the Bible like the glory cloud, that pillar of the cloud that followed the tribes, pillar of the cloud by day, pillar of fire. By, that, that was the glory of God. And in the temple, they had something called the, the Shekinah glory of God. It filled the temple in certain instances where they couldn't even stand to minister. And so, you know... God's created light emerges from his presence. And the heavens declare this glory. Now glory, the word itself, means heaviness or weightiness. And by implication, importance. So if something is glorious, it has weight, it has substance. And so when we think of God, we think of his importance. And so we glorify God when we make him great in the way that we talk about Him, the way we live our lives. So we can glorify God when we praise Him, when we say true things about Him. We can glorify Him in our words and in our deeds when we live lives of obedience that reflect that He really is all that we say He is. In doing that, we glorify God. And then you have Jesus. He's the Lord of glory. Do you remember one of the, the great Christmas hymns? Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. It's not a song about an angel named Harold that sang a song. No, he, it's hark. Listen. The angels sing. What's he saying? Glory to the newborn king. But the other words of the song say, say, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. So Jesus is glorious, but when he was on earth, he veiled his glory so that it wasn't apparent except at different points like Mount Transfiguration. And so he is the Lord of glory. And right now he is sitting on his glorious throne. When John got a glimpse of him in Revelation in his glory, whew, it was overwhelming. He fell at his feet as one dead. So he's a glorious Lord. And then when we come to things like creation, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. We're going to see in a minute 
It's going to center on the sun a little bit. The sun is glorious. Go outside after the meeting today and stare at the sun for a while. How far will you get? Maybe a second or two before you have to turn away, overwhelmed by the glory of the sun. And God created the sun. So how glorious is he? So when we talk about glory, that's just a little, and we could talk a lot more about it, but we're talking about God manifesting his presence in ways that are obvious. All right. God is glorious. God is good. Uh, God is also faithful, and creation shouts this. It says the heavens declare it, the firmament proclaims it continually, constantly, with regularity, day after day, night after night, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above join with all nature in manifest witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. So the sun, the moon, the stars, they're pouring out speech. They're revealing knowledge. There's no place you can go to avoid this voice. It goes throughout all the earth. They're words to the end of the world, universally, incessantly, constantly. And what are they saying? They're saying that God is glorious, God is good, and God is Faithful. You can count on the sun rising tomorrow. You can navigate your sailing ship by the stars. But there's something else that's implied in all this. And here's the implication. God is also someone who must be reckoned with. When we reflect on the heavens and the sky above, during the day, the glorious sun dominates. And at night... Seeing the stars, we come, we come aware of, of how vast the universe is and how very small we are. The night sky, in particular, astounded ancient man. It's not quite the same for us now. We're modern people. At night, when it gets dark, we go inside and we turn on the light. It's called the television. Light pollution in our congested metropolitan areas means that when we go outside and look at the night sky, oh, there's the moon, and uh, is that the Big Dipper? Uh, maybe, I'm not sure. Could be. It limits our appreciation for what every night ancient man saw how vast the universe was. I've seen the Milky Way, uh, I think, twice in my life. Once when I was camping in upstate New York, another time when I was in New Mexico, I was astounded, amazed. It had an effect on me. Psalm 19 is saying the same thing. It's implying what David says explicitly in Psalm 8, probably as a shepherd boy. When he was out with his flocks at night, he saw this all the time, and it made an impression on him. He said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which thou hast made. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. You are so great and I am so small. I think I was about 10 years old and I was with my dad. 
And we were outside at night and he was pointing out to me things in the night sky. And I can still remember that experience. I felt very small, very insignificant, and I also felt afraid. I knew that all of this had something to do with God, but I didn't know God. And I didn't know that I didn't know God. Well, God is speaking in creation and his voice is saying, I am glorious and I am good, but I must be reckoned with on my own terms. And not everybody gets this. If you're familiar, perhaps, with 20th century American intellectual history, and I don't suppose too many of us are, but there was a man named Sidney Hook, and he was a brilliant philosophy professor at NYU. He was a contemporary who also corresponded with Albert Einstein and Bertrand Russell and John Dewey and others. And um, he started out in his life as a communist in his youth, but he ended up receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Ronald Reagan in 1985, shortly before he died. He was kind of like the Charles Krauthammer of his generation. Uh, But Sidney Hook was also a thoroughgoing rationalist. It means he didn't believe in the supernatural, including God. And the editor of his letters wrote this about him, quote, Even before he was a teenager, he proclaimed himself an agnostic. It was simply irrational, he declared, to believe in the existence of a merciful and powerful God in the face of widespread human misery. Only the pleadings of his parents that he not embarrass them in front of relatives and friends convinced Hook to participate in a bar mitzvah ceremony on his 13th birthday. People frequently asked him in his later years what he would say if he discovered after death that God really existed. He answered that he would simply state, God, you never gave me enough evidence. You never gave me enough evidence. There's another brilliant Jew who would sharply disagree with Sidney Hook on that count. He wrote, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Romans 1.19 The revelation of God through the soundless shouting of the heavens and the firmament is pervasive. It reaches everyone, everywhere, so we all are without excuse. And to nail the point, the psalmist brings out one particular witness, a star witness. His name is the Son. He's the most significant figure in the heavens. He's the leading actor in the drama. He dominates the sky. And David uses two similes to describe the sun. He's personified first as a bridegroom. In them he has set 
a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now this could mean a bridegroom is leaving his chamber to go and receive his bride. Or it could mean that he's leaving his chamber after already having received her and having consummated the marriage. Either way, the son as a bridegroom is a very happy fellow. He is literally on top of the world. Now this is poetry. Think back, my married brothers. Reflect on your wedding night. How did you feel? Probably pretty good. That was a very cool night. Well, the sun, representing the glory of God, is like a bridegroom on his wedding night. He is strong, he is joyful, he is hale and hearty, and he is in charge. And in the very next simile, same sort of thing. Like a strong man, perhaps a warrior, he's ready to run a race with joy. Yes, the sun is in charge of the heavens. He makes his circuit from one end of it to the other, and he does it every day just as he has from the dawn of creation. And it says that nothing escapes his heat. No one can escape the effect of the sun. Well, the sun here is personified, but the sun is not deified. Virtually every uh, every other ancient culture made a god out of the sun. Why not? It's a pretty impressive thing, isn't it? Not for the Israelites. No. They made a God out of the sun because the sun was glorious. But we are told that God created the sun. So the sun is in charge of the heavens, but God is in charge of the sun. And just like nothing can escape the heat of the sun, you can't get away from the effect of it every day. So similarly, what does that tell us about God? He must be reckoned with. He's in charge. And he's a happy God. He's joyful in himself. He wants us to know. By analogy, no one can escape God. No one can escape from the God who created the Son. Nothing is hidden from him with whom we have to do. All things are open, exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. So he exists. He is glorious. He is good. But he also must be reckoned with. Well, you know, if this is as far as we go uh, with our knowledge of God, we're, we're actually in trouble. Because this is a great God. But as we're going to see at the end of the psalm, whew, I'm aware of my smallness and my need. And somehow something has to happen. So there's another voice that speaks to us. The second voice, nothing escapes the sun, and as the sun dominates the day, so the law of God, or the Torah, dominates human life. This is the second voice, the voice of God in the law, in his Torah. The law does a number of things here. I'm going to read these words again because they are, this is beautiful poetry. Actually, I think I referred to this the last time I was with you when I was talking about Psalm 23, or no, Psalm 112, verse 7. Uh, And notice here, by the way, uh, the first paragraph, the first strophe talked about God 
And that was the word El, short from Elohim. Here, we're talking about the Lord. And you'll notice that it is all in caps, small caps. That's a reference to God in his covenantal name, the name by which he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Sometimes we use the word Yahweh. We're not really sure how it is to be pronounced. But in our English Bibles, the convention is to write Yahweh as Lord, all in caps. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. This law, this Torah, is God's special revelation to his people. That name The Lord, Yahweh, used six times here, is God's personal covenantal name. That's the name that the people of Israel knew him by as their God. Now, there are challenges that we have when we talk about the law. Law and grace are opposed to one another. Until you get saved, that is. And then, law and grace are wonderful friends. Did you know that? Yeah, the law is opposed to grace. When we're talking about coming to faith, you don't get to God by keeping the law. But the point is, once you know the Lord, once you belong to Him, ah, the law shows us the character of God and the ways of God And that's why we still read the Old Testament with profit. You see, having brought the people out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, having saved and delivered them from slavery, which corresponds to sin, God then gave them the Ten Commandments, a summation of the law. He gave it to them as His people. And He gave it to them... To show them these are the guardrails on the highway of life. Keep these commandments by the grace of God and you'll have a happy life. That's how the law is to serve us. And that's how we're to understand it as we read this passage. God gave them the law, the law of the covenant because he loved them. He wanted them to live in the good of this covenantal caring relationship that he had initiated with them. So as we look at these next words, we're supposed to see the law, the instruction of God as belonging to us. It's the treasured possession of God's people. This is why the psalmist often rhapsodize over the, oh, how I love your law. Yeah, that's what David is doing here. This beautiful lyric expresses this great treasure that we have in the word of God. And the voice here is clear and distinct. These words describe what the law is and what the law does. A lot of synonymous expressions, commandments of the law, precepts of the law, statutes of the law. All right, 
There are nuances of difference between them, but that need not concern us here. It's poetry, and the overall effect is supposed to grab us. And it's all summed up in the first line. The law of the Lord is perfect. It is complete, reviving the soul. It's complete. It lacks nothing. That's what it is. And as for what it does, it revives our soul. That means it converts, the soul, restores the soul, turns the soul back to God again and again. When we read the Word of God, we get reoriented. It's like our compass. You know, we can be traveling in a wrong direction, but when we open the Bible and the Word of God, we start to read, it's the Spirit of God that's inspired it, and it kind of gets us back, tunes us up, reorients us to true north so our compass is pointing in the right direction. That always happens when we read the Bible with faith. So it revives the soul, it converts, it turns, it brings the soul back to life. We're begotten by this Word of God. It's God always taking the first step in reclaiming our souls to Himself. Why are you a Christian today? Because God took the initiative to draw you to Himself. Why are you here right now? It's because of the work of the Spirit of God. It's just God doing it, and He does it through His Word. His covenantal words are sure, they are right, they are pure, they are clean, they are desirable. They are these things and they also do things. Besides reviving us, it says it makes the simple wise. We are simpletons by nature. We don't know right from wrong. But the word of God, the law of the Lord is able to enlighten our eyes, to convert us, to convict us and to conduct us along the way the law of God is good it endures forever you don't have to worry about it burning out it's always going to be there it's true it's righteous altogether it's so desirable it's more to be desired than gold no not just gold much gold no not just much gold much fine gold and that's the quality of it but then the way that it affects us it's sweet sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb and you think of what, you know, everybody wants in life. They want money and they want honey. I feel like if I've got money and I've got my honey, I'm all set. That's I don't need anything else. I'm all set. Well, the Lord does that for us. I've got money. I've got my honey. I'm satisfied. But wait, there's more. Call now and we'll double the offer. It's almost like an infomercial. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there's great reward. Two interesting things there. Another person is showing up in the psalm. Your servant. That's the first time he's mentioned. It's going to come come out again in the last in the last paragraph. By them is your servant warned. Oh, you see the word of God, the law of God. It's going to keep you out of trouble. Now that's valuable. Staying out of trouble. That's worthwhile. I hope that got your attention. Besides keeping us out of trouble, there's a payoff. Keeping them, there's great reward. Great reward. So David is rhapsodizing about the Torah, the law of God, about its value. And that phrase, your servant, indicates that there's a relationship here. Your servant Servanthood indicates a posture, a position, 
of humility. Obviously, a serving position. It puts us in right relationship to think of God as the one that we serve. Now, I know that we're sons and daughters, and we can often run away from the idea, I'm not just a servant, I'm a son. That's true. But the psalmist here is speaking as a servant, and you never want to get too far away from that. We are servants. We're actually unprofitable servants, even if we do everything that's expected of us. It's not a... I don't know. To me, that's not real flattering to think of myself as an unprofitable servant. But that's what I am. At my best, when I do everything that's required of me, I'm an unprofitable servant. That's what it says in the Gospels. I think it's a good place to think of yourself in relation to God. Because it leads to this last voice, which is very important, the voice of God's servant in response. All right, we got the glory of God in creation, the wonderful word of God in covenant with us. But as wonderful as that is, notice the effect that it has on God's servant. His response is a self-awareness of sin, of weakness, and of need. And I think it's appropriate. It's a humble voice. It's a self-reflective voice. I know it's possible to... Go too far in the direction of an awareness of sin so that people live in a pit. And I realize there are dangers in that as an extreme, but we don't want to get too far away from this either. It's equally important that we feel our abasement. It is. It's important that we maintain that sense of our abasement vis-a-vis God with a corresponding and proportionate exercise of faith. As Charles Bridges said, let us lie low, but let us look high. That's a good balance. Who, verse 12, can discern his errors? Rhetorical question. The answer? No one. We all make mistakes. Errors. Even Manny Machado makes errors from time to time. Who can discern his errors? No one. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, not sinless, but blameless, and innocent of great transgression. Do you notice the progression there from errors to hidden faults? Those are things that we're aware of, but others aren't. And then presumptuous sins, those are sins with a high hand. That's getting bad. And then it goes all the way up to the great transgression. Well, we want to stay away from these things. We want to, when we become aware of an error, to own it, to repent of it. This is the self-reflection and humility of the servant of God. If we do that, we'll be less likely to allow hidden faults to fester and then become presumptuous sins, sins with a high hand against God. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Ooh, that's dangerous. And if that continues on, the great transgression of turning away from God. 
In the face of God's greatness as the creator of heaven and earth and in the light of God's perfection as it's been shown in his holy law, how should a man and how can a man or a woman stand before God? We become conscious of our sin. Who can, affect, who can escape the effect of, of the sun? No one. Who's not accountable to God in his law? No one. Who can make himself clean? No one. Who can escape the consciousness of his own sin? Well, no one. Even hidden faults we're not aware of. But then he says this. He says, declare me innocent. Declare me innocent. It's a plea for justification. It's the prayer of a servant of God. It's the kind of servant that says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. You, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. I need you. They are humble words, but they are also words of faith. Notice how he concludes. It's not just a confession of sin. It's a confession of faith. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the psalm just before this, David three times addressed God as his rock. Psalm 18. And that entire psalm is a psalm of praise for deliverance from death. God the Lord is his redeemer and his rock that is his refuge. And when the Lord refers to when David refers to that, he it's a clear reference that David is making to a greater son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are redeemed by his blood. He is our rock of refuge. Whenever you read the Psalms, you want to see where, where may the Lord be in this? Sometimes He's there explicitly. But as Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets speak of me. When I'm reading this, I'm thinking, where's Jesus here? I think He's right there as He's throughout, but especially at the end, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus is my rock. Jesus is my Redeemer. I need a Redeemer and I need a rock of refuge. And so this psalm becomes a prayer of beautiful aspiration of the humble servant of God that we should all aspire to that sees God's glory in the created realm that reads of God's love and care for us in His Word. And that appeals to God personally as the rock and as the redeemer of our lives. When we are on that sure foundation, we will not be moved. Not because we've got such a firm hold on him, but he's got a firm hold on us. And this is the response of the servant of God who sees him in his glory. Let's pray.